Ever since the 24th of February, when we begin this series on the book of Galatians, I have tried repeatedly to drive home the, the principal and foundational message of the book of Galatians. And that message is simply this. Obedience to the law or human effort of any kind cannot save a person. What brings a person to salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. No matter how long your list of regulations and rules might be, no matter how well-intentioned you may be in trying to keep them, no matter how diligent you may be in trying to keep them, because we've all failed to keep them completely and consistently, we are before God condemned. It is impossible to get right with God by human effort. If you're here this morning thinking that you can work your way to heaven by good works, you are sadly, sadly mistaken. We are saved on the basis of God's grace through faith. Faith, not works, is the instrumentality through which we receive the benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not water baptism. It's not joining a church. It's not sitting at the Lord's table. It's not doing good works. It's not giving money. You and I come into possession of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins and the assurance of heaven by faith alone as a gift from God. Now Paul, in the book of Galatians, is making that argument to first century Christians that he had led to the Lord. He had brought them to faith on his first missionary journey as he went into the region known as Galatia. And Shortly after Paul left them, false teachers came in and began to attack him as the messenger as well as his message. And unfortunately, these people listened to them and they fell under the spell of these false teachers. In fact, Paul says at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, you have been bewitched. It's almost as if a spell has been cast over you. These people were attacking Paul personally as the messenger as well as his message. And so Paul felt compelled to defend himself. And he does so in this letter. His credibility as an apostle was being challenged and so was his message. And Paul knew that when the gospel is being attacked, when it's being misrepresented, our job as Christians is to defend it. And as you read through this letter, and hopefully you've read through it numerous times as we've been looking at it for these last few months, Paul defends himself and he defends the gospel vociferously. He doesn't do it because he was thin-skinned. He doesn't do it because he had a low self-image of himself and these folks were picking on him. No, Paul is defending the gospel of salvation by faith alone. And what Paul has done in this book up to this point is he's made a compelling and convincing case. In fact, as I was thinking about this, I thought this is a wonderful book 
for us to turn non-believers to who might think they're going to get to heaven by their good works and, and just remind them of what it is that Paul says in this book. In fact, just to underscore that point, look, if you would, at Galatians 2. Uh, let's pick it up with verse, how about verse 15? He says, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Period. Look, if you would, at verse 6 of chapter 3. He says, So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Look at verse 10 of this same chapter. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything. That's the problem right there. You have to do everything written in the book of the law. And then he says in verse 11, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. I hope one of the things you've appreciated as we've been going through this book is that Paul makes a detailed carefully created, admittedly sometimes complex and difficult to follow, argument. In chapter 3, he says that your experience with the Holy Spirit is proof that you're saved not by works but by faith. He says you above all people ought to know that justification and the Holy Spirit come by faith. He goes on and he uses Abraham who no doubt was a hero to many of these false teachers as an example of someone who was justified by faith. He says, let's, let's just think about the timeline for a moment. God says that Abraham was justified by faith 400 years before the law was given. Additionally, he was justified by faith in Genesis chapter 15 before circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. The obvious implication or result is, was he declared righteous before God on the basis of circumcision? No. Was he declared righteous before God on the basis of the law? No. Why? Because the law will not and cannot save you. Circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, tithing are not the means for a right standing before God. The Mosaic law that the legalists thought so important to earn God's favor was introduced, Paul says, 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant was established. It cannot save you. In fact, as we read in verse 10 of chapter 3, all it does is it brings a curse upon you. Why? Because we can't keep the law completely. Now, when you come to verse 19 of the third chapter, Paul is at the point of his letter where he has made his case so convincingly, some might argue too convincingly, that some might begin to wonder, well, what then was the purpose of the law? In God's scheme of salvation, why did God give the law? 
Isn't the law actually in opposition to the gospel? And so Paul, in verse 19, both ask, and then in verses following the question, he answers that question. He says, why then was the law given at all? And it's obvious that when he raises this issue, he had faced it many times before. You see, people there in the first century would, would be reading this letter and they would say, wait a minute, Paul, hold on there, buckaroo. You've referenced the law eight times. I counted them eight times in this chapter alone. In verse 5, 10, 11, 12, 13, 17, and 18. And Paul, it would almost seem as if you've been bad-mouthing the law. And as a result, Paul, what then is the purpose of the law? You've just destroyed the foundation upon which I was building my, my hope for heaven upon. And Paul, I now need some help. If the Mosaic law wasn't given as the means for man obtaining salvation... Why was it given? And so Paul, anticipating that objection, answers it in the following verses. And let me just be candid with you at this point. I really struggled with this message. In fact, of all the messages I've preached so far through the book of Galatians, this was the one that I had a most difficult time getting a handle on. And I was almost... I was almost going to cop out, you know, and I was going to sort of use that term that as I was praying over this passage, the Lord led me to preach on something different. Let me give you a little information about inside baseball as far as the clergy is concerned. Oftentimes when a preacher says that, it means I don't have a clue what this passage is saying, so we're skipping over it altogether. I, I sort of felt like that. But you know, the more I, I looked at this passage and I tried to unpack it, I, I think I've come up with a way for us to appreciate it by looking at it under three basic points. First of all, the liabilities of the law that Paul talks about here. Then the necessity for it. And finally, the purpose of the law. If you have your outline, you might want to just follow along. I think it will be beneficial to you. But I want you to notice four things that Paul says regarding the law's liabilities, its limitations. First of all, he says that the law was an afterthought. He says in verse 19, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions. Stop right there. Look at that word, added. Now in the outline, I've put the word afterthought in quotation marks because nothing is truly an afterthought to God. History has not caught God off guard so that he's not sure how to respond. God knows all. He planned everything out from the beginning. But from the human perspective, the law was added as a corrective measure to deal with the growing sin problem that had arisen among God's people. And as such, God deemed it necessary to spell out more clearly and precisely what was permitted and what was forbidden. 
And so the law was added in God's providential thought as a God's providential plan, rather, as an afterthought. Secondly, I want you to notice that it was temporary. It was added until Christ came, or as some of your translations might render it, until the seed came. When you look at verse 16, it's obvious that the seed, in some of your translations as it's given, rather than translating it Christ, is a reference to Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that the law had a beginning and an ending point. Again, look at verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed or until Christ, to whom the promises referred, had come. In other words, with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the law was done away. And now its demands are fulfilled in us through the Spirit. If you're taking notes, just jot down Romans 7, 4. It says, so my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. God never intended for the Mosaic law to continue on indefinitely as a rule for the life of of Jewish people or for anyone else after the coming of Messiah. In fact, you might want to just think of the law sort of as a parenthesis between the promises that were given to Abraham and the fulfillment of those promises in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is so important. Don't Don't think then that we can sort of blow off the law as meaningless. I mean, it did come from God, so it has value. It is important. Just because it was an afterthought in God's providential plan from our perspective, not God's. Just because it was temporary in nature is not to suggest that it wasn't important or that we can't learn something from it. You say, Doug, you know, I've been reading my Bible through and... (laughs) I come to those those laws in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and man, it's almost like chloroform in print. I mean, I'm having problems staying awake. What is the purpose of those laws related to dress and diet and lifestyle? Well, friend, those laws were an everyday reminder to a Jew that he was part of a covenant nation and people. And every day that man or woman got up to get dressed and he opened his closet and he looked at the clothes that he could possibly wear. He had to make a conscientious choice whether or not he was going to obey God or disobey God. Every time he went to the table to eat, every time he went out to a restaurant and ordered a meal, Every time he went to work, he had to make a conscious choice. Am I going to obey God or not? He knew that life is full of choices. And God says, I'm going to give you some direction in regards to that. Now, we today don't have all of those rules and regulations. But you know what that 
Old Testament law is teaching us related to all of those things, diet, dress, lifestyle, and everything. It's telling us every time you and I wake up, we have to realize that today is the day that is filled with all kinds of choices. And are my choices going to honor God? You know, when you think about the, the, the rituals that the priests went through, you know, where he would take a, a saucer of blood and he would put some blood on his earlobe and he'd put some blood on his thumb and he would put some blood on his big toe. You say, what in the world did that stuff mean? Well, friend, that meant that I was going to have an ear for God. I'm going to listen to what God says. And, and that blood that was put on my thumb meant that I'm going to have hands that are willing to serve God. And when that priest put a little bit of blood on his big toe, it meant that I'm going to have feet that I use to go where God wants me to go. What's more, there are certain principles that are found in the law, primarily the Ten Commandments, that are eternal in nature. They're timeless in their application. Because those commandments are the expression of God's will for man before the time of Moses, during the Mosaic period, and to this very day. That's why nine out of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. The only one that isn't is the Sabbath day. But I would argue that the concept of the Sabbath, because it's rooted and grounded in creation, still calls for us as God's people today to take one day out of seven and use it to rest and worship God. But you know, all of those rules, all of those dietary regulations, those rules related to dress, those rules were related to ceremonial law and the sacrificial system, while temporary, all were designed by God to keep Israel healthy and safe and prosperous during their wilderness wandering until the Messiah arrived. And every, every time a, a Jew would, would wake up in the morning, he had to make that conscious decision, just like you and I do. Am I going to honor God today? Well, let me suggest a third limitation, and that is it was given through intermediaries. In other words, it was given through a middleman. <laughs> In this case, an angel, or angels, plural. Look what it says at the end of verse 19. He says, It was added because of the transgressions until the scene whom the promises referred to had come. He says, The law was given through angels, and entrusted to a mediator. You know, this is a truth that's found again and again in the scriptures. It's found in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Hebrews. Probably the clearest passage that talks about that is in Acts 7.53, where Stephen, who was one of the early church leaders and the first martyr of the church, was giving his final sermon, and he says towards the end of that sermon, he says, the law that you received was put into effect through angels, but you have not obeyed. What were some of the limitations, the liabilities of the law? Well, friend, it was received by Israel third hand. It came from God, to angels, to Moses, and then to the people. 
Now, contrast that with the covenantal promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. When you read the book of Genesis, you find over and over again, it says, the Lord said to Abram, and then later on to Abraham. There was a direct communication between God and Abraham. And then when that covenant was confirmed in Genesis chapter 15, specifically verse 17, it says that the, the, the pot of, of, well, I better read it to make sure I get it right. I had it marked down here. It says, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. It says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. No intermediary there. No middleman. So which is better? Well, look at verse 20. Which, by the way, is one of the more difficult verses. In fact, this is the one that had my head spinning for a while. In fact, are you ready for this? There are commentators that said that there are over 350, some have suggested 400 different interpretations of that verse alone. That just makes my head spin. But look what he says. He says, a mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Now, what, pray tell, does that mean? Well, I think the key here is related to, to relate this verse to the previous verses. What's Paul trying to do? Well, he's trying to point out the inferiority of the law to the promise. In Genesis 15, the promise of the gospel was given directly by God. The law, however, was given indirectly. It required a middleman. And his point here is simply this, that the promise is superior to the law. The promise trumps the law. Finally, he says it was impossible or helpless to impart life to us. Look at verse 21. He says, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. What he's saying here is because no one can keep everything demanded in the law, the law cannot impart life. Again, no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how sincere, no matter how dedicated, because none of us can keep the law thoroughly and completely, we all stand before God condemned. Now again, that doesn't mean that the law is in any way against the promises of God. Both were given by God, but for two entirely different purposes. So, why didn't God institute something with so many liabilities? Why didn't he just skip the Mosaic law and bring Christ into the world? Why was it necessary that the law be given? Why why was it necessary for this parenthesis that I spoke about? Well, let me suggest three reasons. Number one, because society became more complex. We all understand that. 
When God first created man, he dealt with him primarily on the basis of his conscience and then through direct revelation. The basic moral law of God was written on every man's heart, and in addition, God communicated his will directly to his creatures. Let's face it, you know, during the time of Abraham, it was a much simpler time than today. And then at the time of the Great Flood, it appears that a brief code of laws was established for the stability of human society. And so when God gave the law to Moses, the society had become much more complex. We all know this basic axiom of life, the greater the number, the greater the need for law and order. Right? I mean, think about it. You've got a nation of at least a million people leaving Egypt about to go into the promised land. They had a difficult trek ahead of them of 40 years, a challenging conquest of the Holy Land. And so it was necessary, it it was important that God give a detailed code of conduct for them so that his people could be organized and structured Those of you who are school teachers, you know that the larger the class, the more the need for more rules and more regulations. If you're a caregiver, you know the more people you have to care for, the more structured you have to become. To mobilize a group that's large without laws brings with it total chaos. I think there was a second reason And that is humans' rationalization called for a clear definition of sin. You know, we have a tendency, do we not, to to just rationalize things away. Give a person a general moral principle and he'll find as many loopholes as he possibly can. And what happens is that things have to be spelled out in detail. We all tend to be very subjective, and so there has to be an objective standard. Let me give you a beautiful illustration that every one of you will be able to understand. When I was growing up here in Utah in the 50s and the 60s, you know, that even sounds old, doesn't it? In the 50s and the 60s. But when I was growing up in this state, there were parts of this state and in other states as well that had no speed limit. I mean, once you got out past the major cities into the country on the interstate, the highway sign simply said, speed limit, safe and reasonable, or reasonable and prudent. It's a great idea, especially given the wide open spaces we have out here in the West. But you know and I know that it wasn't too long before safe and reasonable needed some clear definition. Uh, People were justifying all sorts of bizarre highway insanity on the grounds that there was no law against it. And their understanding of safe and reasonable was anything but safe and reasonable. And so there had to be a clear definition of what was right and what was wrong. Now, we all need that. 
And let me just add, knowing some of you the way I do, myself included, I doubt if that approach would work today, even with a country full of Christians. There has to be a standard. Believe me, I'm convinced that Harry Hoover's standard of safe and reasonable is anything but. He comes from Montana. He knows what I'm talking about. There has to be a definition, a standard of what is right and what is wrong. In fact, Paul makes that point in Romans 7, 7 when he says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I mean, think about that 10th commandment. We're not to covet. And when God gave that command to Moses, he spelled out specifically what he meant by coveting. We needed a clear definition of what it meant. And that's why in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it says you're not to covet. But then it says you're not to covet specifically your neighbor's house, wife, servant, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We need a clear definition of what is right and what is wrong because inevitably the question then that we would ask if we're not to covet anything of our neighbors, what's the next question we ask? Well, who then is my neighbor? In fact, Jesus was asked that in Luke 10 by an expert of the law. And unless a person has a vital relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, he needs for sin to be defined with greater clarity to prevent rationalization and self-justification. Well, let me suggest thirdly, punishment demands a standard. That's one of the reasons the law was given. It demands a standard. One of the hallmarks of a just and righteous society is that a person can't be convicted of a crime if there is no law on the books specifying that his actions as a criminal that his actions as criminal at the time he committed them. And that's the hallmark of Paul's theology. He says that in Romans 4, 5. He says, where there is no law, there is no violation or transgression. In other words, God is going to punish mankind. If God is going to punish mankind or discipline him, it's necessary that those actions that he is going to be held accountable for be spelled out. By the way, there's a great application of this to us as parents and grandparents. Friend, never punish a child unless it's on the basis of prior instruction. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have our four grandsons from Grand Junction staying with us. Two of them are going up to Pioneer Bible Camp and we'll have the other two little juvenile delinquents for, I mean... The other children. But you know what we're going to have to do as, parent, as grandparents? We're going to have to say, Nico, Lucas, don't use a crayon on the wall. Don't write on the wall. We don't want that. We're going to make sure that the rule. And you know what if they do, and we haven't told them that that's wrong, you know what we do? We just blow it off. Friend, discipline always needs to be on the basis of prior instruction. Well, why then the law? What is the law's purpose? Let me suggest some things. Number one, it was designed to put a lid on sin. 
to restrain evil. I think that's Paul's point in verse 19 where he says, Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions. The law keeps sin in check. It acts as a deterrent within society. The law functions as a means of restraining evil. Again, if you're taking notes, jot down 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. It says this, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebellion, rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their father or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. And for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusts to me. Friend, you cannot have a society with no laws. Otherwise, you have anarchy. And the law goes a long way toward putting a lid on anarchy. Laws preserve and promote civil order. Now, laws don't eliminate sin. Additionally, obedience to them doesn't make a person moral. But it does restrain, it limits the immoral. And let me also just add this. A law is only as good as the enforcement of it. You know, if you think about some of our major cities where crime is so rampant and where there are outrageous public displays of revolting and degrading immorality, the fact of the matter is there's already laws on the books against some of that behavior. But there's an unwillingness on the part of many to enforce those laws. Let me suggest, secondly, it was designed to awaken the awareness of sin within us. That's one of the purposes of the law. At the same time, the law is keeping a lid on sin for society's benefit. It's also fulfilling another purpose. And that is it reveals to us just how sinful and wicked and corrupt we are and the awful consequences of sin. One man wrote, Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by the law which God gave to prove us sinners. God wanted to provide his people with a clear statement of his standards with an unequivocal definition of sin and righteousness so that when we failed to meet that standard, we would seek his grace. I think that's the whole point of verses 22 and 23. He says, Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Friend, a prisoner is someone who's considered guilty of a crime and he's held in restrictive custody. And the law rightly condemns us in our sin and holds us as prisoners under the sentence of guilt. But the law not only condemns us in our guilt, it makes us even more guilty by driving us to sin even more. And that's one of the ironies of the law. 
You know, let me ask you, am I the only one who when they see a sign on a secluded driveway that says private, do not enter, that wants to drive up that driveway? <laughs> Don't look so pious at me. I know what you all are like. Friend, that sign triggers within me something that says, hmm, what's at the end of that driveway? It's not that neighbor's fault. It's not that sign's fault. But we all have that desire to disobey. Now, God has given us the bad news before he could give us the good news. It was never his purpose to abandon us in this despicable, desperate, hopeless situation. And so what he does is he says in verses 24 and 25, he says that the purpose of the law was designed to lead people to Christ. And I love this. Look, if you would, at verse 24. He says, so the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The New American Standard says that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. The King James says that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. I think the message explains it as well as any translation or paraphrase, actually. It says this. Now listen carefully. The law was like those Greek tutors with which you are familiar who escort children to school and protect them from the danger or dis from danger or distraction making sure the children will really get to the place they set out for but now you have arrived at your destination by faith in Christ you are now in a direct relationship with God now what does that mean simply this the law was like an ancient custodian. It was like a tutor, a guardian, a, a schoolmaster. Wealthy people in the Greek culture there would have their children from the age of six until adolescent put under the constant care and supervision of this tutor. The Greek word here is pedagogue. And they were part babysitter, part chaperone, and part probation officer. And it was their job to sort of guide that child, that adolescent, through those learning years. He wasn't primarily a teacher, although sometimes he would help the child review his lesson. But he made sure that the child got from, from home to the school. He would help feed and dress the child. But the pedagogue wasn't the educator. He was the disciplinarian and very often a close bond would develop. And what Paul's point is simply this. In the plan of salvation, the law is the pedagogue. The law was the tutor, the guardian, the, the schoolmaster that raised that Jewish, that raised the Jews from childhood through adolescence. It was never intended to teach them how to get better so that they would be accepted by God. It was there for the strict 
and sole purpose of leading them to God. Preparing them as God's children to come to faith in him. And you know what Paul is saying here? He's saying that the law, like a pedagogue, eventually would work its way out of a job. And that's what the law has done. That's why we're no longer under the law. When a child comes of age, it no longer needs constant supervision. One Greek writer said this, When a boy ceases to be a child and begins to be a lad, others release him from his pedagogue and from his teacher. He is then no longer under them, but is allowed to go his own way. And friend, in much the same way, the law was needed only until the coming of Jesus Christ. What was the purpose of the law? It was to bring a man to Christ by showing him that he, in and of himself, was utterly unable to keep the law. And when that person comes to Christ, they no longer need to be under the dominance of the law. Why? Because the law is not going to save you. The law no longer becomes a way of life for him. Christ then becomes the way of life. And friend, here's the bottom line. Here's the major takeaway for the morning. It's simply this. God's law makes a wonderful mirror in that it reveals our sin. But it's a terrible washcloth. You know what we need? We need Jesus Christ. We need faith in him. We need to let the law do its intended work and nothing more and nothing less. And what Paul is saying in this passage is you can't make it on your own. What you need to do is you need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Let me close by reminding you what I said at the beginning and that is the principal message of this book. The foundational fundamental message is this. Obedience to the law or human effort of any kind cannot save a person. What saves people is faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, I'd invite you to do so. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this marvelous, marvelous book. Lord, what a, a challenging passage this has been. And I pray, Lord, that you would take the words that I've said that were in accordance with your word and seal them to our hearts. And Lord, if we've said anything that was misleading or inappropriate, I pray, Lord, that you would strike that from our memory. But Lord, open this very, very difficult paragraph of thought that Paul wrote to these first century Christians and help us to be able to understand it. And Father, even if we can't understand every verse that is found in this section of God's word, I pray that we would come away with the fundamental lesson. And that is that the law mirrors our sin. And it is not the means whereby we wash away that sin. Help us to realize that the law is a mirror and not a washcloth. We pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. And all God's people agreed and said.
Amen.